Alrighty, so this week we will be looking at another pair of uh, curses, another pair of woes that Jesus pronounces on the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, some some literary stuff here. Remember, I said that Jesus is kind of speaking like an Old Testament prophet here in this passage, where he's pronouncing these curses because of the things that they're doing. Um, there are some other similarities with. Uh, the Old Testament is particularly with a specific Jewish form of literature or form of expression called a, a parallelism. You ever heard of a parallelism before? Okay, so uh, a, a parallelism is a um, a statement where you have two lines or two phrases where one emphasizes the second or clarifies or or strengthens or in some cases contradicts. Uh, the 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 first um, in the case of verses thirteen through fifteen that we looked at here a few years ago, Jesus pronounced a curse upon the Pharisees because they kept people from entering the kingdom of heaven. He said, uh, "You you bar those who would go in. You shut the door in their face." And then in the second. Uh, that comes immediately after that, he says that they are hypocrites. They travel across land and sea to make a single convert. And when they do, they make him twice a disciple of hell. Those two thoughts are parallel in that they're, they're not only keeping people who earnestly seek to enter the kingdom of heaven at bay, but they're also taking those people that they are converting and leading them the wrong direction. So it kind of emphasizes and and uh, clarifies the idea that not only are they lost, but they lead people into lostness, and they act in such a way to keep people lost, sort of like the anti-GPS, if you will. So uh, today, in verses 25 through 28, you're not changing the verse reference on me, are you? That's for next week. In verses 25 through 28, it's what we're reading today, we have another group of parallelisms um, with the second one clarifying the first. And you'll see that here as we read. So I'm going to invite you all to stand as we read chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Let's pray. Father, help us not only to see these curses upon the Pharisees, but help us to see how they could apply to our own lives. Uh, Help us to understand that we need to be cautious not to follow in the footsteps of these experts in your word. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Jesus paints a real good word picture with these two curses. 
right? And I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the, the, the first one. I know there's a couple of people here, like my mother, who are like extreme germaphobes. <laughs> Kira is another one. Uh, it, it really happens to people who work in food service at all. Um, that first picture of somebody who washes the outside of the dishes, but not the inside is really just that. Think about that. That's, that's nasty, right? I'm going to tell you a story. This has nothing to do with scripture, but this is a similar, this, when I read this, this was the first guy that came to my mind and, and I'm going to see if Steph can identify who it is, um, without saying his name. So a guy that I used to work with, and this is going to give it away for her. Um, he was a few years further in the service than I was. Um, he had come into our shop. Uh, we were in New Jersey. He had come in from the UK. Uh, he had been stationed in England for a long time. He had married a British woman. Uh, they had, uh, she had a daughter from previous marriage, and then they had two boys, right? William and George. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he had really, really, really adopted British culture. Okay. He, every day, like clockwork, he drank a cup of tea. Every day. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, it was not iced tea. It was not sweet tea. He was not from the South. It was, it was hot tea. Uh, normally it was imported tea. He, he actually had it shipped from the UK. So it was good tea. It was, it was not Lipton, you know, Joe's Americanized tea that's been fished out of the bay. It's tea. And he used a coffee cup for that tea. I don't think I ever saw him drink coffee from that cup. He drank tea from that cup every day. And his cup never got washed out. Now he'd take it, he'd take it to the, to the, to the bathroom and he'd rinse it out with some hot water and he'd wipe out the, uh, wipe off the outside of it, but he never washed the inside of the cup. All right. Now, if you drink a lot of tea, now down here, I'm talking about people who drink iced tea, sweet tea, right? You drink a lot of tea. What happens to your teeth? They start getting stained, right? Tea does that even more so to the inside of a coffee cup, right? So the inside of this white coffee cup was stained with all of the tea. It looked disgusting. I would never ask to borrow Dave's cup. Not a chance. It was just, it was nasty. I'll never forget this one year, his daughter, I believe it was, his stepdaughter, contracted strep. She got strep from somebody at school or whatever. Brought it home, of course, he gets it. Everybody in the house gets it because that's what strep does, right? So he, he goes to the doctor's office. He's running a fever. He feels like garbage. He goes to the doctor's office. You've got strep. Here's your antibiotic. Go home and rest for a few days. So he takes his round of antibiotics for seven days. Strep clears up. He's good to go. He comes back to work. About four days later, he's got a fever again, and he feels like garbage. So he goes back to the doctor. Oh, that's weird. You've still got strep. Make sure you swap your toothbrush out. That's the most common reinfecting agent when it comes to strep is your toothbrush. 
right? Go figure, because the bacteria is in your mouth, right? So he swaps his toothbrush. He takes the antibiotic. He's in a week. He's clear. He comes back to work. Four days later, he's sick again. Why? Because of that teacup. So he had to take his cup home and run it through the sanitizing cycle in the dishwasher. Now, all that stain, I don't know what they used in the dishwasher to clean, but all that stain on the inside was gone. The cup sparkled. It was like new. And all he did was complain that it changed the flavor of the tea. Right? You have the same thing. <laughs> if there's that much stain inside your cup, that's probably not a good flavor. I'm just saying. Right? You run into the same thing with those guys in their coffee cups around the shop. Right? You probably had it at the car dealership. You probably had it at Howells. You, everywhere you can think of. I've worked with those guys in the Air Force. They got a cup. You look inside that cup, and it's blacker than the pit of death. And the outside is white and sparkly. This is the picture that Jesus is talking about. He says, you Pharisees will wash the outside of the cup and the plate and the bowl, right? So the outside, the part that everybody sees, is clean. The inside where the food goes is disgusting. By this time in Israel's history, their religious practice had devolved into nothing more than an external keeping of the law. If you think about the, the prophet Malachi, one of the things that, that Malachi, I, I love Malachi is, is just, he lets the people have it, right? And he's speaking for God. And he says, just, just stop already. If you're going to bring the sheep to the temple for the sacrifice, at least make it a live one. Right? You're bringing the sheep that died last week from old age. Okay? You still have the sheep's AARP card. It is beyond its prime. It is not spotless without blemish. It is, it's lame. It's blind. It's got gangrene for Pete's sake. Don't bring that. Just don't bring the sacrifices. Just stop. That's what God says to his people. Because their religious practice had gone to just empty external practice that would never happen in the church right why do we come to church it's because what we're supposed to do why i don't know it's what my grandmother taught me it's what my parents taught me Think about what we looked at last week. The scribes and the Pharisees, they tithed on the herbs in the garden, but they ignored justice and mercy and faithfulness, right? They did the outside stuff that people could see, but the inside stuff that mattered, nobody can see that. They used their broad phylacteries and their long tassels. On the outside, their coffee cup was sparkling, but on the inside, it was stained and dark, just like that.
coffee cup. It was even infectious. So then, like I said, we've got a parallelism here. Jesus goes on. says, you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, I don't know why I didn't think of this example when I was writing this. I I probably should have growing up on a farm. Not that we used whitewash a lot, right? It's the inside of the barn. You whitewash the walls. So they were bright white and sparkling. They had, well, they they were that way for a little while. (laughs) Till the first time the cows were let back into the barn, Right? But funny thing about those walls, you know, I, I don't know about the, the older part of the barn. It may have been, you know, formed out of the dust when God created the earth for all I know. But the newer part of the barn, that was made with cinder blocks. Cinder blocks, once they've had a couple of coats of whitewash, can have a pretty smooth texture. But once you got about this far down on that wall, that texture underneath that whitewash wasn't real smooth. Wonder why? Yeah, because there was stuff underneath that whitewash. Now, going back to Jesus' example here, right, there's some cultural stuff that's going on. He, he says that th- these guys are like whitewashed tombs that on the outside look pretty, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones. We've all heard this example before, and I know we all know what a whitewashed tomb would look like, at least in our head, right? So a couple of things going on. Um, First of all, when we think of tombs in the biblical sense of the word, we think about a cave, right? A large cave-type structure where the dead body would be taken in and mummified, wrapped and everything. And then as the decay process took place, eventually all you're left with is bones. So then the family would go in and collect the bones and put them in a box, and then they'd take that box and bury it. It's called noshuary. They're being found all over Israel now. As a matter of fact, they claim to have found the, the ossuary with Jesus' bones in it here a few years ago. Um, that, that, yeah, not happening. Um, but when we think of these tombs, that wasn't the norm. That was what rich people owned. Where was Jesus buried? Was that his tomb? No, that was a borrowed tomb. He, he, it was Joseph of Arimathea who owned that tomb. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was probably very wealthy. He's on the ruling council in Jerusalem, right? Poor people wouldn't have a cave structure in a formal cemetery. What they would have would be a hole in the ground that they'd put a rock over top of. Because that's cheaper. Right? That's kind of harsh, but that's that's how burial took place. Well, you think about this, you have a dead body and a hole in the ground. Now, context-wise, look at the book of Leviticus. I don't have a particular passage for you. This is metaphorically look at. In the book of Leviticus, there are all kinds of instructions for what to do with dead things. 
right? If you have a food animal that dies unexpectedly and you come into contact with it, you can't eat it because you don't know what it died from. And if you do come into contact with it, you are considered to be unclean for a period of time. Um, if you come into contact with a unclean animal that has died, then you're unclean for a longer period of time. If you walk into a house and the occupant of the house has died, then you become unclean for another period of time. And there's all of these different rules for coming in contact with dead stuff. Right? A person who is unclean was separated from contact with the congregation. There were two reasons for this. One was to prevent the spread of disease. Um, two was to symbolize God's requirement for his people to be different. So there was a religious separation. If you can't be with the congregation because you're unclean, you can't go to the temple. You can't go to the synagogue. You can't make an offering or a sacrifice. You couldn't be part of the congregation for the Passover meal. So being unclean was a problem. Makes a whole lot more sense when we think about Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Because after the guy gets beat up and mugged, the robbers leave him for dead along the path. So when the priest comes wandering by and he sees a body laying alongside the road, why doesn't he go over to investigate? Because if he did and the guy was dead, he would be unclean and he couldn't do his duties in the temple. Now there's a problem with that because it comes into direct conflict with compassion, right? God doesn't care if you can do your duties in the temple if you're not showing compassion towards people. That's what Jesus meant about mercy and justice and faithfulness. So, I'll tell you another story from my military career. The disease part of this. We went on a deployment exercise in uh, out in the boondocks on the west side of Utah. All right? Uh, now, Utah is a beautiful state along the highway. All right? So, you've got I-15 that travels north to south, and you have I-80 that travels east to west. Along the highway, three or four miles in either direction, gorgeous. You get beyond that little strip along the highway, there's nothing. It is wasteland. Uh, have you heard of the Bonneville Salt Flats where they do speed tests for like world record, you know, the world's fastest motorcycle, that kind of stuff? That's done out there on the west side of Utah. There is nothing. It's flat. So we're out there for an exercise deployment exercise and we had to <laughs> everybody colloquially calls them foxholes right we call them defensive fighting positions they're foxholes right so you dig a hole that's about yo deep right and then you put some camouflage over it so the bad guys can't see it when they're attacking your camp so we had this one shop who went out and they dug they had a backhoe all right so the rest of us are out there with our little trenching tools you know toy shovels digging in the sand, and they're out there with a small excavator. They've got a Cadillac foxhole. I mean, this thing's great. 
and they've got everything. They, they got tunnels going off to over here and a living room, TV set up, and it's just crazy. So they go out to collect up their camouflage. And they're out in the sagebrush. And this guy finds a dead steer. So he picks up the head of the steer and he brings it back. And he sets it on top of the foxhole for their camouflage. Because it looks cool. And we had a medic in the unit. And he was walking around and he says, that looks awesome. Did you kill it? No. Okay. Everybody who's been here in this foxhole. This DFP in the van. We got to go back to the base. Why? You need shots. For what? Anthrax. What else could have killed that steer? Who knows? How much of it was communicable to people? Yes. That entire team, they had to take their backhoe, they had to fill in that hole, they had to bury it all, and they had to go back to the base and get a round of shots. Rabies, all kinds of fun stuff, right? This is why there were strict rules about dead things. Now suppose you're a family, let's say you're a rich family, and your tomb is a cave, Right? Somebody comes upon this cave. There's a good possibility it may be used as a tomb. I'm going to stay away from it. Right? Unless you're a kid, because kids go in. Right? But even if you're a kid and you walk up to a cave and there is something inside that is dead, you're going to know. Okay? But what if you're one of those poor families and your tomb for the family is not much more than a hole in the ground that you put a rock over top of? What if somebody steps on it? They've now come into contact with an area that's unclean. That's a problem. Because you could be inadvertently taking people out of the religious life of Israel. So how would people... Fix this. Whitewash. Because if I'm walking through the field and all of a sudden I come upon this stone that is blazing white, I think I'll walk around. So that's why they whitewashed their tombs, was so that people didn't accidentally come into contact with dead bodies. So that people could stay clean, Right? But Jesus says that the Pharisees and the scribes were like whitewashed tombs. Did they stay away from people to keep them ceremonial clean? No. No, in fact, people would flock to them. Outwardly, they appeared to be bright and white and shining. Inwardly, they were full of death and corruption and decay and sin. And the people who came into contact with them generally would wind up being more unclean than they were 
when they started. You travel the far reaches of the earth to make a convert, and when you do, you make him twice the disciple of hell. That's what Jesus said. I've tried to do this the last few weeks when we're looking at these because it, 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 there's a real propensity for us. When we read Jesus talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, when we read uh, the Old Testament especially, i got to be really careful when I'm reading the Old Testament, especially the book of Judges, right? How many of you ever read the book of Judges? If you haven't read the book of Judges, start to finish. It's a great book, right? But when you read it, you need to have a mirror, Okay? As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you, every time you read the Bible, you should have a pocket mirror next to it. Because every time you read Scripture, it's really easy to go, how could these people be so stupid? That's where the mirror comes in. Because I'm one of these people. It's really easy to look at this and say, well, Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. They were terrible. Remember... The scribes and the Pharisees never, ever, ever woke up and said, today's the day I'm going to become a heretic. They never woke up and said, today's the day I'm going to lead God's people to sin. They always intended to do the right thing. So what does this have to do with us? I'm not only not a Pharisee or a scribe, I'm not even a Jew. Well, going back to verse 13 again, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The focus was on their legalism. God's law is very clear. Don't do this. The job of the Pharisees was to tell people what that meant. And they would put up a boundary. Don't cross this guardrail. If you stay away from this guardrail, you won't step over the cliff. That's good. Except they told everybody, if you step over this guardrail, it's the same as going over that cliff. But what if my child falls down that cliff? You need to stay away from them. Lest you become dirty too. There's a problem with that, right? And then they would set up their own interpretations so they could walk around the end of the guardrail and do whatever they wanted. Then he condemned them for their practice of taking oaths that they had no intention of keeping. Quit lying. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you say you're not going to do it, don't do it. Don't swear an oath to make people think that you're trustworthy, because you're not. And then last week, tithing on their herb garden, but not paying attention to taking care of the people that God puts in our path. How does this apply to us? These were people who were serious about God's word. The scribes, their job was to copy God's word. They were the Xerox of the day. They knew the text of the Bible. 
They knew every command, every prophecy. They knew the words of the text. The Pharisees were sages. They were wise people. They were teachers. They knew that God desired holiness in His people. And so they taught people how to be holy. But it was an outward holiness. Here, a couple months ago, my buddy Danny uh, recommended to me to read a, a series of mystery novels. The Rabbi Small mystery novels. Um, I'm not a real big mystery reader. I do like a good television mystery, drama, that sort of thing, but I'm not a real big mystery reader as far as books go. But I, I took his I took his recommendation. I went out, I found him on uh, Kindle, and I downloaded him. I've read four of them. I'm on the fifth one right now. And uh, the reason he recommended them is because they really provide an insight into Jewish life. And this, this is Jewish life. They really do believe that all they have to do is be outwardly clean. As long as they keep the law, they're doing God's will. Now, they're not concerned about heaven. Remember, the idea of heaven and hell didn't exist in Israel until Jesus started preaching it. Well, guess what? If you're Jewish and you've rejected Jesus, you probably rejected all of his teaching too. There's nothing about heaven in the Old Testament. It's about death. That's it. So they hope that they've kept the law faithfully enough that God will say, you're okay, and they get to rest when they die. That's their hope. The Pharisees were focused on outward holiness. They were like the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus? Good teacher. How can I inherit eternal life? He says, why you call me good? There's only one that's good. Who's that? God. Jesus isn't saying, I'm not good. He's saying, why do you call me good? Do you really recognize who I am, or are you just trying to flatter me so that I can tell you that you're okay? How can I inherit eternal life? What does Jesus answer him? Oh, no, 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 no. First answer. Keep the commandments. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, honor your parents, don't commit adultery, don't covet. That's what Jesus said. Why would Jesus tell him that was the answer? Because we are supposed to not do things. God is concerned with our behavior, but He's more concerned with the why of our behavior. Do you understand that? God is more concerned with why we do what He tells us to do than He is with do we do what He tells us to do. Because there are people out there, there are good people who are unsaved, 
who don't do the right stuff out of a heart of worship for God. They don't do the right stuff. The rich young ruler. Jesus said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Honor your parents. Keep those things and you'll have eternal life. What did the rich young man say? Did it. It's entirely possible that he did. At least outside. So then what does Jesus tell him? Oh yeah, by the way, the first table of the law, you know about treating God as the most important thing in the universe, not yourself? Sell all your stuff and then come follow me. And the man left sad because keeping the law was all he had. I've checked all the boxes. I've never, I've never even said that I worship another God. I've never blasphemed God's name. I've never treated him as profane. I've always kept the Sabbath. I've done everything. I, 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 I. Who's the most important? Look at his question. What can I do to inherit eternal life for me? It's important to do the stuff that God tells us to do. Ephesians 2.10, why are we saved by grace through faith? To do the stuff that God has prepared beforehand for us to do, right? James, you say you have faith, great. I will show you my faith by what? My works, the things that I do. Jesus, right here. You tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. These you ought to have done. You should have tithed on the mint and the dill and the cumin. You ought to have paid attention to justice and mercy and faithfulness. Neither one of them is mutually exclusive. Just because you're focused on mercy doesn't mean you can't tithe. Just because you're focused on justice does not mean that you cannot obey the law. Even here, you wash the outside of the cup Is it better just to wash the inside of the cup? No. No. There's a guy I work with, refuses to use a straw when he goes to a restaurant. He drinks straight from the cup. And people are always like, aren't you afraid that the cup's not clean? It's like the cup's supposed to go through the dishwasher. You use a fork. <laughs> oh, thanks. Not anymore. <laughs> you got to wash the inside and the outside of the cup. Was having the whitewashed tomb important? Yes. So that people didn't accidentally become unclean. 
Was Jesus saying we need to stop whitewashing all the tombs? No. The trap that the rich young ruler had fallen into, the trap that the scribes and the Pharisees had fallen into, the trap that is really, really, really easy for us to step into is that of doing what we do for the wrong motive. We come to church. We come to the worship service. Why? That's how I was raised. Because that's what's expected of me. Because my parents said I had to. Because if I don't, God's going to strike me down. God's going to flatten my tire. God's going to make my day terrible. God's going to do something to me if I don't. We come out of habit. We come out of obligation. We come out of fear. We come out of because I have to be there. Because everybody needs to know how much I love God. Or do we come because we desire to give God glory for who He is? We give our offerings. Why? It's because we want everybody to see that we put our money in the plate? Because I feel that I have to put money in the plate or, or God is somehow going to make it hard for me to pay my bills this week? Do I put money in the plate because, well, God's done a lot for me. I've got to do something back. He's, he's not the Godfather, right? He's not making you a deal you can't refuse. Do we give our offering because we want to see the kingdom grow? Because we, we want to continue to meet together to worship and encourage one another. Because, you know, as much as I don't like to admit it, we live in the United States, which is a capitalist economy, which means that there are companies that sell us things like electricity. And we have to pay for that. A lot. I don't know about you, but I like air conditioning. A lot. Is that why I put money in the plate? No. Having clean cups and clean plates, having whitewashed tombs, that's important. But what's more important is why we do it. Jesus says that that the, the scribes and the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. How does he describe those tombs? Outwardly, they appear beautiful. Is that why we do what we do? Is so that we can sparkle? 
and shine and have people look at us and say, you are so, so much closer to God than I am. No. The point of the works, the point of the stuff that we do, is always to give God the glory for what he's done. None of us are going to be able to do that perfectly. I'm human. I like people to pat me on the back. I like being recognized for the stuff that I do. I like, I like people to like me. A little bit, not too much. When we read this passage with our mirror sitting next to it, we need to ask the question, what's the inside of my cup look like? Have I neglected righteousness? Have I neglected faithfulness? Have I neglected mercy? Have I missed an opportunity to minister to somebody because I'm too worried about what people are going to think of me? We need to let these words change us just as much as the Sermon on the Mount that says, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Oh, we're okay with that. Well, see, if I'm persecuted, Jesus says I'll be blessed. That's a, that's a good thing. I'm okay with that. Not so much when Jesus is talking about how I behave and what my attitude is. As we get ready to go this morning, I challenge you, like I always do, don't just read the words to the scribes and the Pharisees. Because in first century of Jerusalem, they were the Southern Baptists of the day. They were us. How easy it would be for us to be them.